and welcome to Sharper Iron. Spend the next hour with us studying the living and active Word of God, His two-edged sword of law and gospel, recorded for you in Holy Scripture, all about Jesus Christ, crucified, risen, and ascended for you. Thanks for tuning in this morning here on Worldwide KFUO, Christ for you, anytime, anywhere. I'm your host, Pastor Timothy Apple of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Wednesday, February 7th, we are studying Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. In today's text, St. Paul first describes a visit he made to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus, in which he refused to yield to the Judaizers. And then he describes an account from his time in Antioch, in which he had to confront St. Peter over his conduct that was not in step with the gospel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Peter Ill. Pastor Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor Ill, welcome back to Sharp Iron. It's great to get to be back with you and to hear the truth of God's Word together. Pastor Ill, I'm a little disappointed that the weather, as we are recording, has prevented you from coming to the Bible bunker today, but I'm glad that you're able to record with me still. This is where we can be thankful for God's, well, the gift of the internet that comes to us by God's care. Um, and That's right. It's it's better to get to be uh, recording with you than heading out on ice covered roads. So now, does uh, your hopefully all of our studio, listeners are staying warm and staying safe. Does your recording studio have a name like the Bible Bunker? No, no. It got to work on that next time. Yeah. <laughs> nonetheless, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, we get to gather in our respective recording studios and hear from God's word. The Bible Bunker and the Nameless Recording Studio in Millstadt, Illinois. So, Pastor L, we get to talk about Galatians 2 today. Talk to us a little bit about this epistle and any context leading up to our text that we should know. So, here in Galatians 2, and it's important for us to remember, in all of Galatians, there is kind of this challenge of Paul has gone out and brought the gospel to the Christians in Galatia, and right up after him comes uh, this group that he calls the Judaizers, people who are trying to teach after him, hey, if you guys really want to be Christians, then you need to do X, Y, and Z. Especially, you need to live like a good Jewish person in order to be a good Christian person. And so, especially, you need to keep kosher dietary laws, and the gentlemen among you need to be circumcised. And you Gentile converts to Christianity can't really be Christians unless you're circumcised. And Paul pushes back against this, saying... The gospel as I taught it to you is enough. The gospel that I taught you is all that you need to know and all that you need to believe. Circumcision accomplishes nothing for you. Keeping kosher accomplishes nothing for you. The shed blood of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins accomplishes everything for you. That's what you need to know. That's what you need to believe. Don't worry about circumcision. Uh, and where we're headed today is going to talk about how even when the Judaizers insist that Paul's colleague Titus be circumcised, Paul refuses. And even when other apostles are led into hypocrisy, Paul will call them out uh, to maintain for everybody in Galatia and everywhere else, all you need is Jesus. And that is his point. And uh, it's a really significant point for us as uh, people will come to Christians and say, 
the church is full of hypocrites and sinners, and we'll say, absolutely. Uh, and when people try to insist that we need to be more this or more that, uh, our response is, all we need is Jesus. All we need is his forgiveness, his purity, and his holiness that he brings to us again and again. That is the heart and the center of the gospel. Mm. Yeah, so Paul is emphasizing that heart and center of the gospel throughout this epistle. As we pick up here in chapter 2, we're getting more of Paul's backstory, his history, in receiving that gospel, as we heard at the end of chapter 1, and now a few more incidents from Paul's own life in which he shows the centrality of the gospel in his ministry and preaching in two different accounts, both of which are going to involve Peter in one way or another. So we're jumping into Galatians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of his Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seem to be influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles, and when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? That is our text for today. That's Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. All right, so Pastor Ill, we've got two sections here in the text. The first is longer than the second. In the first one, we're going to hear a little bit about Paul's visit to Jerusalem, one of his visits to Jerusalem. Take us into the way Paul describes this visit. So in Paul's visit to Jerusalem that he's describing here, uh, he talks with Peter and James and uh, as he is talking with them. And here in this passage, I love Paul's little parenthetical references. He's like, they seemed influential, but really they weren't influential because the same God who called me to the the Gentiles called Peter to the Jews, and it's the same God. And so if they're really influential or not, yeah, you figure it out. But what is really important is the gospel. And as he was there talking with them, this is probably also a good point, good place to point out. 
Paul actually switches back and forth with Peter's name a little bit. And so sometimes he calls Peter Peter, and sometimes he calls Peter Cephas, uh, which is the Aramaic of Peter's name. And so either way is fine. It's the same guy, but it is really helpful for us to know and remember, oh, Peter and Cephas, same guy. Uh, and is, so there's before, three people, not four. So before you move on from that, there's, and I don't know, I, I didn't really think about this too hard. Is there any significance to when he calls him Peter and when he calls him Cephas, or is it just whichever one he happened to write at the time? I don't think so. I think he just kind of seamlessly moves back and forth between the two uh, without uh, a whole lot of, of thought uh, or significance, I should say. Um, I don't think it's when when Peter is acting in a way that Paul doesn't like, he calls him Cephas. And in a way that he does like, he calls him Peter. Uh, and and I don't think there's enough emphasis there to track that down any place. Sure. Okay. So. Yeah. No, it's a good question. I just, it's the, the data's not there to prove it. Gotcha. Okay, good. All right, so we, we, we've established some of the players in this text. Uh, Paul, for his part, has Barnabas with him, and Titus is coming as well. So talk to us maybe about the people that come with Paul, as opposed to the people he meets and talks to there in Jerusalem. So especially uh, Barnabas is, he's along for the ride in this account, but he's not a main, a main player the fact that Titus is along, though, becomes really significant. So Titus is uh, is a Gentile and therefore would not have been circumcised in his infancy and was brought into Christianity. And so even as Peter, uh, sorry, as Paul and Barnabas and Titus are speaking about the gospel that they confess in their missionary work to uh, the apostles there in Jerusalem, uh, there's not an emphasis that Titus the Gentile be circumcised. And even these seemingly influential apostles don't make a strong case. There are some secret brothers brought in uh, who were trying to spy out the freedom that Paul has in Christ Jesus, trying to, as Paul says, bring them into slavery, uh, tried to insist that Titus be circumcised. And Paul simply says, no, you can't circumcise Titus, not because we have any strong feelings about circumcision and if it's a good or healthy thing to do or not, but because you are trying to say he's not a Christian and can't be a Christian until he has this little procedure, then we're not going to do that. We're not going to subject ourselves to what you think it takes to become a Christian because it is Christ and his grace that establishes who a Christian is and how a Christian life is lived, not you guys. You guys don't get to make the rules. That's up to Christ alone. And Christ says, believe in me, be baptized, uh, obey everything that I have commanded you. And that doesn't involve, for Gentile converts, circumcision. And so Paul sticks to his guns. Yeah. I think the his attitude in that case is especially well described in verse 5, where he says, To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, and here's the reason, he says, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. So talk a little bit more about that reasoning of Paul in refusing to have Titus circumcised at this trip to Jerusalem, especially in light of an event in the book of Acts, I believe it's in Acts 16, where Paul first takes Timothy along on a missionary journey, 
and prior to that missionary journey, he does have Timothy circumcised. So, so talk to us about why Paul's attitude here is what it is, especially when we've seen him do the opposite in another case. Right. So in Acts 16, 3, uh, Paul goes to, uh, uh, to Derby, uh, sorry, from Derby and Lystra, he is going to take uh, Timothy with him. And because he was going to do missionary work to the Jews, uh, he had Timothy circumcised. But now Paul isn't going to the Jews. He's going to the Gentiles with Titus. And that's what they are agreeing to as Paul is in Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. And so since he's going to the Gentiles, he's not worried about Jews that won't accept Titus's testimony. They're going to Gentiles. If Titus is a Gentile and is required to be circumcised, then all of the Gentiles that they are serving as missionaries to would also be required to be circumcised. And Paul says this is an issue of the freedom of the gospel. Uh, you don't have to be circumcised to be a Christian. We're not circumcising Titus because you guys are simply trying to enforce rules for how to become a Christian that go beyond what Christ has established. We're not going to do that. We have freedom in the gospel. And the second that you try to make a rule that Jesus hasn't given us, in order to, to stake out our freedom, we're going to maintain we are free to not do that. Uh, which comes up even today in the church's practice when somebody says, in order to be a Christian, you have to, or you must, the church often says, because you said we have to, we're going to do the opposite. Uh, watch us. As we say, no, you're, you're not going to uh, be able to boss us around by your man-made self-imposed rules. And so Paul voluntarily circumcised Timothy when they were going to the Jews now that he and Titus are going to the Gentiles, there is no voluntary circumcision. There's no involuntary circumcision either. Instead, Titus is going just the way he is as a missionary to the Gentiles along with Paul. So the, the way you, you talked earlier, Pastor Ill, about when someone insists upon these man-made rules, then our response is, well, you're not going to boss me around, which, which might sound combative to some or... You're just being difficult. Why can't you just get along? Why, why is that a case in which you can't just get along? Why is it necessary in such situations to, in fact, do the opposite of that man-made rule? Why is that such a, a big thing? If somebody else comes along and says, this is how you have to be a Christian uh, and doesn't have the command of Christ, then if you cede that point to them, it's like you agree with them. Uh, there's kind of an example from history. This is going to sound obscure, and some of our listeners might think, really, is that a thing? Uh, but but I promise it is. There was a time when there were some some Calvinist Christians who insisted that you would take the that the pastor would take the communion bread, and when he said, and on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus broke it, and during that time they would break it to show that this cannot literally be the body of Christ because it breaks like bread, and. They said, you have to do that. And the churches of the Lutheran Reformation said, no, absolutely not. We are not going to practice what they called the fracture or the breaking of the bread because you said we have to. In fact, before we said it was an option and if you wanted to, you could. But now that you say that we have to, no, nobody do this. And so that's why a lot of Lutheran churches don't practice that today, even though it's no longer an issue Nobody else is telling us that we have to now, but because several hundred years ago, 
churches were telling us we had to. Now we say, no, we don't do that. Not because we're being difficult, but we refuse to to cede that ground and give that up. Because you said we have to, we're going to say, no, we don't have to at all. Uh, and we're going to maintain uh, our Christian freedom to not do that. We're not going to let you bully us into position, uh, into this or that position. And so it's not that we're being difficult. It's that we're, we are standing up and saying, you tried to tell us what it has to look like to be a Christian. Scripture doesn't bring that rule. Christ didn't bring that rule. And we're not going to follow your arbitrary man-made rule, uh, be it about circumcision or uh, breaking the bread for communion and when you do that or wearing vestments or doing this or that. If you say that we have to, we're going to say, no, we don't have to. Watch us not do it. Watch us do the opposite of how you're trying to bully us. Uh, it's not combative or difficult, but rather a full, a full voiced holding on to Christian freedom that we have in Christ. That's what Paul was doing here with Titus regarding circumcision. Uh, and that's an example that we continue to live out in the church today. Uh, if any of our listeners want to uh, look into the Lutheran Confessions a little bit more about this, Formula of Concord Article 10 on Adiaphora, or things that are not commanded or forbidden in Scripture, talks a lot more about this and has some really good stuff. I commend it to, uh, to our listeners as something else to think about, but uh, that's a little bit beyond where we're headed uh, today sure. in Galatians 2. Sure, absolutely. The, the, what we're talking about right now is spelled out a lot more clearly and a bit more detail in that section of the Formula of Concord. To the example that you brought up, I think with the breaking of the bread during the words of consecration in the sacrament, not only is it the matter of you have to do this, but even the false confession that is inherent within that action, that part of the reason the bread was broken at that point is, as you said, that was their confession of saying, hey, it's not really the body because we can break it just like bread is broken, therefore it must not be Christ's body. That was another reason on top of the requirement that Lutherans historically have not done that during the, the words of institution, at least since that point. Maybe a, another example that hits a little bit closer to home for us still today is in the mode of baptism. Oftentimes, Lutherans do not baptize with immersion, not because we can't. We certainly can baptize via immersion, or that somehow it's not that it's invalid, but rather there are those Christians who insist that for a baptism to be valid, that must be the mode, is to immerse. And so in order to hold on to the freedom we have in Christ, which I think is to say in order to hold on to the confidence that we have in Christ, we don't typically baptize by immersion in order to show that the power in baptism is not how much water is used, but rather the Word of God. And so it, again, it, it's not about being difficult or standoffish or stubborn, but it is about holding on to the confidence that we have, and that's found in Christ alone in his gospel. We are attached to Christ's promises, not to the amount of water or when we break the bread or, or if you're circumcised or not. It is all about the promise of Christ and faith in Jesus Christ. Yeah, that's right. That's, so in, that's what we oh, stick to, uh, not to, not to anything else. And so if, you, if somebody wants to say, it's because of the amount of water that was used when you were baptized. We say, absolutely not. No. Instead, it is all about the grace of Christ who promises that he is in and with the water for the forgiveness of sins. 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. So again, this is this is why Paul, in this instance, refuses to let Titus be circumcised, but in another instance, encourages and has Timothy circumcised. In that case, this pressure of you have to do this in order to be a Christian is not there. Rather, his concern in that instance, without going too far down that trail, his concern in that instance is similar to what we heard back in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when we studied that on Sharper Iron, that Paul is seeking to be all things to all people. He is seeking to proclaim the gospel among those of Jewish background in a way that will not cause them offense. That's what's going on there in Acts chapter 16. Exactly. Yeah. So those those two instances, similar, like a, a, the same question, circumcised or not, two different answers both of which are faithful, given the context in which those decisions are made. Let's keep talking a little bit more about this instance here in Jerusalem where Paul makes this visit with Barnabas and Titus. We've talked a little bit about the, the men who are there in Jerusalem. Some are in—they seem to be influential. They're not really influential. Talk to us a little bit more about that. Why, why these men? Who are these guys? And why is Paul talking to them particularly? Well, so this is James— uh, who is kind of regarded as being the head missionary and head apostle in Jerusalem. Uh, and Which James is it? I, uh, <laughs> this I, is, I think it's James, the brother of our Lord, right? Right. Not, yeah. not James, the brother of, because James, the brother of John, has been probably martyred by this point already. Correct. And so this is James of Jerusalem, who is also James the half-brother of our Lord, James, the author of the epistle of James. Uh, and so it's, it's that James, uh, along with Cephas or Peter and John. And so apparently they all happened to be in Jerusalem at the same time. Uh, since John was later kind of headquartered in Ephesus, uh, it leads to some questions about, about the date of this visit and how long was John in Jerusalem and how often did he travel from Ephesus back to Jerusalem? Uh, and there's all kinds of good historical rabbit trails there that we don't have uh, really clear uh, empirical data on. But sure. they're all in town. Paul is also in town with Barnabas and Titus. And so there's a little bit of name dropping here, I think, where he's like, he's like, I met with the guys that you would think of as the most important of the apostles. Uh, James, and P uh, James of Jerusalem, the half-brother of our Lord, and Peter and John, like, does it get any more authoritative than that other than to Jesus? And he kind of goes on and says, were they actually influential? No, not really, because they're not Jesus. But even then, you guys are going to think that they're important. And so I'm going to name drop a little bit. And Peter and James and John didn't think that Titus needed to be circumcised. We agree. Here's what we did agree on. We agreed on me carrying the gospel to the Gentiles with Barnabas and Titus and them carrying the gospel to the Jews. That's great. They just asked me to remember the poor in Jerusalem, which I was planning on doing anyway. So that's what I'm going to do. And so here I come to you Gentile Christians in Galatia, along with Titus, and Titus isn't circumcised because he doesn't need to be. Peter and James and John recognize that. I am going to hit you up for a gift for the poor in Jerusalem a little bit later. But right now, 
just know that Peter and James and John are fully behind what I'm doing here. They're behind the message and this gospel that I'm communicating to you as much as I am. And I got this straight from Jesus. So if you're going to keep arguing with me, you're doing nothing except arguing with the most respected of the apostles and with Christ himself. You should probably stop that. Good advice. I, yeah, I, Paul pulls no punches, and he doesn't even give up the ground to say that Peter and James and John were the apostles that everybody should listen to. He says, yeah, you guys think that they're influential, so here's who says that this is fine. Uh, so if you want to keep fighting, go ahead. But you're not really going to get anywhere. What's your court of appeals? You know, What's the next level up that you're going to, to escalate this to? Peter and James and John said that this is the same gospel they preach. So let's move along. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, in, in one sense, the way Paul uses this word influential in the beginning part of chapter two maybe seem a little bit surprising given the way that he spoke in the end of chapter one, that, you know, this was not man's gospel, didn't receive it from any man, wasn't taught it by any man, it was given to me by this revelation. And now he, he brings up the conversation he's got with these, quote, influential people, but as he as he uses that word, I do think you you see within that the the genius of Paul's argument <clears throat> is that their their influence really wasn't what he was looking for, but rather what he was looking for was to see for himself and to show to the church and to the world that what he's preaching is the same thing as these men who are preaching that they are all on the same page here. They're all united to use that language from. 1 Corinthians, they're united under the name of Jesus Christ, and they're all preaching this same gospel. So you're not going to be able to, to play one off the other and to think, oh no, Paul, you're not legitimate. You got us started, as the Judaizers would say, but you didn't finish the job. These men, these other apostles, the Judaizers, they can finish the job that you started, Paul. No, no, that's not the case. Paul brings up this visit to Jerusalem to show, no, we're really on the same page. We're all apostles, we're all called by Christ himself, and we're preaching that same gospel, whether to the Jews or Gentiles, it's the same gospel that's being preached, and there's that unity in there. So let's talk more about that unity on the other side of the break. You're listening to Sharper Iron on KFUO. We're talking to Pastor Peter L. this morning. We'll be right back. Please stick around. Did you know that an investment with Lutheran Church Extension Fund exclusively supports LCMS ministries and church workers? That's right. LCEF ensures LCMS churches, schools, and organizations have access to the financial resources they need to sustain, strengthen, and start ministry work. In other words, you can feel good investing with LCEF because we share your Lutheran values and love for the church. Learn more at lcef.org. LCF is a nonprofit religious organization. Therefore, LCF investments are not FDIC insured bank deposit accounts. This is not an offer to sell investments or solicitation to buy. LCF will offer and sell its securities only in states where authorized. The offer is made solely by LCF's offering circular. Investors should carefully read the offering circular, which more fully describes associated risks. Welcome back to Sharper Iron. It is Wednesday, February 7th. We're studying Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 14 with Pastor Peter Ill. 
He serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. Pastor L, prior to the break, we were talking about the visit that Paul makes to Jerusalem. He names name drops some very influential apostles, though, as Paul puts it, their influence is not the point. The point is that they all agree. They have this fellowship in the gospel. So talk to us about the fellowship that exists between Paul and these apostles in Jerusalem. When Paul starts to talk about fellowship, not only here, but also, say, in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, this fellowship isn't something that's just, like, prescripted. So it's not like your church potluck or your, your coffee and donuts time in the narthex. Uh, fellowship is all about the thing that you have in common or your commonality. And the commonality that Christians have is Christ himself. It's event-based, not just like we are, we are brothers in Christ. And so what is it we actually have in common? What we have in common is Jesus. And if you're doing something that implies that what we have in common is anything other than Jesus, you're doing it wrong. And so this expression of fellowship always comes down to who is Jesus and what has Jesus done for us. That's the big deal here. And Paul is not willing to let that go. Even when Peter shows up and starts to act the hypocrite, Paul reacts because he says, what you're doing is calling into question what our fellowship is based on. Our fellowship isn't based on who you eat with or whose home you go to from within the church, Peter, but rather our fellowship is based on Christ. Two weeks ago, it was fine for you to eat with any Christian. Now, some people from Jerusalem have shown up, and you're afraid they're going to take a bad report about you back to James, and so you're going to change who you eat with, and it's going to sound like that is what we hold in common as the church. There is no room for that. And so Paul gets up and blasts Peter in front of everybody and says, no, our fellowship is based on who Christ is and on the commonality that is our Lord Jesus. If you're going to stop eating with some Christians because you're afraid what they're going to say to James, knock that off. Instead, be a Christian brother with your Christian brothers. That's what we're up to here. And so he puts Peter on blast in front of everybody, and everybody is warned. Uh, there is no room for hypocrisy about our fellowship. It is instead all about having commonality in Jesus, who has baptized us and who has called us his own and has brought us the forgiveness of sins and new life. That's where we find our unity, not in eating with people who are only the circumcised or who only are the ones who keep uh, the Jewish law, our fellowship and the basis for our togetherness is because we share the same Savior. So you, you've, you've moved us into the second event that is recorded in this text, which, which I will allow since you already did it anyways. Good deal. But, but before, before we go too far into that event, because there's more details we want to pick up, come, come back into the first part of the, the text where Paul's talking about his, his visit to Jerusalem and talk a little bit more about the positive aspect of what that fellowship looks like before we see it in, in greater detail the negative side of it, how it's broken and what Paul has to call Peter back to. Talk to us more a little bit about the, how we see the positive aspect in the first part of the text. Sure. So this fellowship that Paul expresses with Barnabas and Titus, with Peter and James and John, uh, is established by that same common thing that we have in common, 
of who Jesus is. And so kind of thinking about where we stand as Christians today, sometimes people want to say that Christians should be in fellowship based on a number of things, uh, maybe like by how we act or what our conduct is or our worldview or our political ideology. This passage is instructive for us to say, no, those things aren't what makes the church the church. Those things aren't what makes the, the church in fellowship with the rest of the church. Instead, we look at all of this and we say it is Jesus' grace and who Jesus is that influences our conduct and our worldview. But we have to answer the question who Jesus is before we answer the question, how do Christians live? And once again, anytime somebody would want to say, in order to be a Christian, you have to do this or that in order to put rules on our fellowship, then we say, no, all we have to do to be a Christian is to believe in Jesus and to receive his gifts in word um, and in preaching and in scripture and in baptism and in holy communion. And if anybody wants to say you have to do more than that, they're selling you a bill of goods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One, one thing I appreciate about seeing the aspect of fellowship in this first part is with this word influential and who's influential and who's not. And looking at the list of names that are there, I mean, I suppose on the one sense, all of those names are pretty well recognized to us. The ones that are there in Jerusalem, Paul, or excuse me, Peter and James and John. And then the ones who come to Jerusalem, you've got Paul and Barnabas and Titus. All of those, I think, are well recognized. But thinking through those of them, Titus is the one that maybe stands out as, who's this guy? Why Why is he coming? And yet, he shares in that fellowship, regardless of his level of influence. So these guys who are, are getting together in Jerusalem are not there based on how important they are. And it's not the the movers and shakers of the early Christian church getting together and establishing their important men club, but rather they are together based on the fellowship of the gospel, regardless of their level of influence. They all stand together under the gospel as those who are sinners, saved by God's grace, and that's what gives them the fellowship, not the influence, not the circumcision, not whatever. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's where the fellowship is. Right. It also, I think, is striking, like, the amount of just attention that Paul is giving to this issue and to this conversation here in the book of Galatians, because this has been an issue in chapter one, it's an issue again in chapter two, it's really going to come back in chapter five, uh, and you have all kinds of, of awkward there. And there's part of me that wonders, and and in the resurrection, I kind of would like to ask Titus, hey, Titus, how awkward was this conversation really when they were standing around you saying, do we have to circumcise him? Like, yikes, I I, I don't want to be part of that conversation. But what's at stake for, for these guys isn't, hey, what's the best way to not get complained at, but rather... What is the best way for us to, to maintain the freedom that Christ has given us? And so that's exactly what they do. Um, what, what is the gospel is the central question here. And if they attach any man-made law on top of Christ's gospel, they know that that's a terrible thing. 
and they refuse to entertain it. And so it's not part of the man club or the influential apostles club or, or anything else other than people who have been instructed by Jesus saying, hey, we're not going to entertain this because Christ has set us free. How dare we go back to the, to the law in order to, to live out Christian freedom? That doesn't work. We're not going to do that. Yeah, I mean, you know, at the end of this, at the end of this epistle, Paul's going to say what what counts isn't circumcision or uncircumcision, but it is to be a new creation in Christ. That's that's what really counts. And so, what that means for the resurrection, I don't know. I, I will say this: as you and I are recording, tomorrow is going to be Saint Titus Day. So January twenty sixth is is the day that the church commemorates Saint Titus. And it was not that long ago in, in my pastoral ministry when I actually heard a, a sermon that was preached at a, a pastor's winkle by Pastor Nate Hill. Well, and he pause pause time out. A what? Sure. A winkle. Yeah, what is that? Pastor's winkle. You you and your definitions, Pastor Hill, I should know better than to use words that we need to define. A winkle is a, a gathering of pastors. Sometimes you'll hear it called a circuit meeting, but oftentimes the historical word is winkle, which I believe comes from the German for corner. So pastors gather in their little corner to talk to each other, to encourage each other in the ministry, to study the scriptures together. So that is a pastor's winkle. Thank you for the reminder to define our words. So if you ever see that on your church calendar, that's what that is. So it was at a pastor's winkle that I heard a sermon preached by Pastor Nate Hill in Winchester, Texas, where uh, in the circuit where I formerly served. And he preached on St. Titus and his lack of circumcision. And, and he made an excellent point that Titus's lack of circumcision then became for him a reminder that his righteousness is found in Christ alone and in nothing else. And I, I thought, what a, what a wonderful uh, reminder for, for Titus, for sure, and for all of us who, who perhaps uh, bear certain signs, maybe not a physical one like that, uh, but who, who have certain reminders in our own lives that our righteousness doesn't come from Christ alone, or sorry, it doesn't come from anything but Christ alone that our righteousness is found only in Jesus Christ. And, and Titus's lack of circumcision was a sign for him of that. And, and we all have signs that, that remind us that, no, you know, we think about Paul boasting in his weakness in 2 Corinthians. That's a reminder that his righteousness didn't come from anything he did, but in, in, in Christ alone. And, and so for all of us, that our righteousness does not come anywhere than Christ and him crucified. Yeah. That's all really well said. Uh, our issue comes down to who is Jesus. And in today's church, we want to try to prove ourselves as Christians in so many different ways. The devil, and certainly the world, and, and our own sinful flesh and sinful minds try to encourage us to find ways to, to prove that we are really, truly, authentically a Christian. And at the end of the day, we are really, truly, authentically a Christian because Jesus said so. Because Jesus has called us that. No... No work, no amount of water in baptism, no this or that is going to do better than the words and promises of Jesus himself. Hmm. Well said, Pastor Ill. So with those, those things in mind, then, let's turn more carefully, more, with more detail, to the second part of our text, which Paul describes a time when he was in Antioch. So I'm, I'm assuming, although we don't have a chronological marker here as to how long it happened, this is happening after his visit into Jerusalem— Paul's in Antioch. Cephas slash Peter comes there initially 
Peter is eating with Gentiles, but when these certain men from James come, he does not do that anymore. So probably the first thing we need to talk about in understanding this is the importance of eating with people. Why is that a big deal here? Right. And this seems really strange to us, especially as you know, 21st century American Christians. We go to a restaurant, and if there's not enough tables, somebody else slides in, and, and that's, that's all like normal for us. But in the first century, who you ate with was a way of showing that fellowship, those things that you held in common, you wouldn't eat with somebody that you disagreed with or that had a, a different point of uh, comparison to you. You didn't uh, eat with somebody in order to hash out a contested issue. Instead, you would only eat with somebody after you came to consensus. And so Peter is eating with Gentiles. Good, faithful Jewish people who weren't Christians wouldn't eat with uh wouldn't eat with people they didn't agree with. Peter shows up and they hold even their table fellowship in common because, first and foremost, they have their Savior in common. Uh, it's a non-issue. Peter recognizes these guys as brothers. And then certain guys, probably from the circumcision party, show up and Peter changes his conduct. What had been good enough is no longer good enough. And it implies that now something is wrong, something is broken with these Gentile Christians. And now Peter is pulling back so that he's only eating with uh, the Jewish Christians. This is really upsetting because Paul says other people were starting to act the same way Peter was acting, even Barnabas. Barnabas, who had been traveling with Paul, Barnabas, who knew better, Barnabas, who had been with Paul in Jerusalem when they came to this consensus over the gospel, is now being led astray by Peter's hypocrisy. And so Paul, uh, in front of everybody, says, Peter, it's not right for you to change your behavior, and it's not right for you to imply that these Gentile Christians aren't good enough for you to eat with them. It, it was good enough for you to eat with them before. They are still good enough for you to eat with them because these are your brothers in Christ. So Barnabas, Titus, Peter, everybody else who's listening to this in Antioch know this. These Gentile Christians and these Jewish Christians are brothers in Christ. They share the same Savior in common. And we aren't going to allow for these divisions in the church to spring up and to continue because all what you need for church fellowship is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The way you're acting is undermining the gospel of Jesus Christ, and I won't have it. Mm. Yeah, it's, I think it's worth a moment here to just reflect on Peter. I, I would imagine, and again, I, I don't know for a fact, but I think that what Paul is describing here happens after what, in Acts chapter 10 and 11 especially, where Peter has that vision of the animals on the sheet, and he goes to Cornelius's house, and he he eats there with Gentiles, and, and he says that God has showed him that, yes, the, the gospel is for the Gentiles too, assuming that Galatians 2, the event described there, happens after that. It's rather remarkable that Peter has that moment that he does there in Antioch. I suppose for, for Peter, maybe it shouldn't surprise us too much. He, of course, is also very well known for denying Jesus three times and yet being restored. All, all this is to say, Pastor L, I, I think it's just a, important for us to see Peter, even one of the, the most influential of the apostles, he, he too remains a sinner who forgets things that he has been taught and needs to be called back to the Lord's Word. 
I think it even shows us the the influence that we give to our human relationships uh, inside and outside the church. And from time to time, we are tempted by how other Christians look at us and think about us and how the unbelieving world looks at us as Christians and thinks of us. And sometimes we want to change our behavior or change the way we live as a Christian to be more palatable to people who have opinions about us. Uh, this didn't work for Paul. Paul wasn't willing to grant that Peter was more influential uh, than anybody else because it, for Paul, all comes down to the gospel of Jesus. And even if Peter is trapped in hypocrisy over what other people would think and might go tell James, Paul's not impressed. Paul says, you're undermining the gospel and it's Jesus' gospel, not Peter's gospel. So stop. Instead, focus on this gospel that Jesus is enough to be our savior. Stay yeah, with that. That's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Now, one of the other things that, that you brought out earlier when we first started talking about this part of the text is that when Paul realizes what Peter is doing and there's a need to rebuke him, Paul does this very publicly. He doesn't pull Peter aside and say, hey, cut it out, go back and eat with the Gentiles. He calls him out publicly. So why why does he call him out publicly? That's, is that okay? Yeah, that seems really strange to us. And uh, there are times when... Even now, we will talk about uh, the importance of Matthew 18 and how Jesus has instructed us to, if someone sins, go to him first, one-on-one. -on -one. If you won't listen one-on-one, -on -one, uh, take uh, some witnesses with you, and then finally tell it to everybody. But it seems like Jesus' words say that you shouldn't uh, start by putting somebody on, on public blast. But for Paul, this very issue of the gospel is at stake. For him to, to resolve this quietly without uh, everybody knowing what was going on uh, would make people doubt the gospel. Uh, Luther speaks really well about this in, in the large catechism. A lot of our listeners are familiar with Luther's small catechism, but in his large catechism, he goes on to talk about the importance of being reconciled with each other as he talks about the Eighth Commandment. But then Luther goes on and says, all this has been said regarding secret sins, but where the sin is quite public so that the judge and everybody knows it, you can, without any sin, avoid him and let him go because he has brought himself into disgrace, and you may also publicly testify concerning him. For when a matter is public in the light of day, there can be no slandering or false judging or testifying, as when we now reprove the Pope with his doctrine, which is publicly set forth in books and proclaimed in all the world. For where the sin is public, the reproof also must be public that everyone may learn to guard against it. Uh, here, Luther doesn't refer to this incident between Peter and Paul and the way that Paul publicly calls Peter out for it. But he may as well have. He is really concerned that somebody will see something that is done publicly and think, oh, well, that's okay. Paul, seeing something that Peter did publicly, wouldn't allow any room for there to be confusion. Paul wanted everyone to know that what Peter was doing was wrong and contrary to the gospel of Christ. And so he let everybody know about it in one fell swoop. Uh, it's unclear uh, 
if it, this caused any kind of awkwardness between Peter and Paul going on, uh, we, we assume that they are reconciled as brothers in Christ. Uh, but Paul did very clearly tell Peter to knock it off and to make sure that Barnabas and Titus and everybody else in Antioch knew Paul is going to get into Peter's business when Peter does something that isn't right. Uh, Peter and Paul had already had consensus. Peter was doing something different now, and that wasn't okay because the gospel yeah. was at stake. Yeah. I mean, again, I know the, the epistles of Paul don't have dates on them so that we can say with absolute certainty when they are written. But it, it, it seems likely that Galatians is one of the early letters of Paul. And we have a pretty good idea of when first and second Corinthians are to be dated around, you know, 54, 55 AD, such that first and second Corinthians are very likely after the letter of Galatians. And in especially first Corinthians, Paul refers to Peter, and I think he uses the word, I think he uses the name Cephas there pretty much every time, but he refers to him a couple of times in a positive light to the effect that, as you say, I, we have no real reason to doubt that they reconciled and remained brothers in Christ, that this uh, bump in the road, if you will, I hesitate to call it a bump in the road because what Paul Paul does is, is very significant and what Peter's error is, is very significant. It needed to happen, but in that sense of a bump in the road that, that this momentary break in the fellowship that Peter was acting like is is resolved so that they remain both faithful apostles throughout the history of the church. Again, that we should, I think, understand that. And again, yeah, it, it can happen even among the most influential that, that, yeah, I mean, we need to constantly, as those who teach in the church, be comparing what we teach to God's Word and the way we live to God's Word, lest we put an obstacle in someone's way. And as those who hear in the church need to be comparing what we hear to what God's word, so that no obstacle is placed, whether in our path or the path of the faithful or the path of the world, that would prevent someone from hearing and believing the pure gospel of Jesus. We're called to live continual lives of repentance and self-examination. If Peter, who was one of the, the inner three of Jesus' disciples, and a, considered a leader among the apostles by the apostles themselves. If he can fall into this kind of sin, why can't any of us? If Peter can fall into this kind of sin and needs to be called to repentance, so do each and every one of us. And so we are constantly to be on guard against hypocrisy, against the breaking of fellowship, against being uh, thinking that the opinions of other Christians or the opinions of non-believers matters. And so we continually have to look at ourselves and say, have I sinned in a similar way to the way that Peter here sinned? And so I'm going to go beyond calling it a bump in the road and call that hypocrisy and that breaking of fellowship sinful, just like Paul called it sinful, and calling for repentance for it. Not only does Peter need to be called to repentance, but but each and every Christian today needs to continually have this word of God presented before us so that when we err, we too repent and believe in the gospel and not try to flee from, from it or to try to justify ourselves with why it seemed like a good idea at the time. No, where there is sin, bring repentance and Christ who is faithful restores you. We got about two minutes here, Pastor Ill. As we reflect on this section of Galatians chapter two, help us to wrap things up. Give us the the law and the gospel from this text. 
in all of this, the most important thing for us to continually remember is the gospel of Jesus. It's really easy for us to think about other things becoming important or significant or, or starting to become the main thing. Paul is very, uh, very single-minded in this. He won't grant that Peter is influential or that James or John is influential. He will simply say Jesus is influential. And if you want to live a way that strays from how Jesus has come and taught, then you're wrong. And so we continue to live lives where we won't be influenced by what the world thinks or by what other Christians think. Instead, we are influenced by what Christ thinks. So how does Christ think about you? Christ thinks about you as somebody that he has declared fellowship with. You are united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection by baptism. Believe in Jesus, receive what he gives you, and live in that commonplace with Christ, with everybody else who is also in common with Christ. That's what establishes our fellowship. As you live in Christ, repent and believe daily, uh, daily being drowned to sin and alive as a new creation in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's the promise we have. That's the confidence. It doesn't come down to who you eat with or if you're circumcised or if you're not circumcised. It comes down to Jesus. Jesus is your Lord. Believe that and know that in him you have life and forgiveness and salvation. And the Lord is faithful to his promises and will not leave you nor forsake you. Pastor Peter Ill serves at Trinity Lutheran Church in Millstadt, Illinois. He's been helping us today to study Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 14. Pastor Ill. Thanks for being our guest today. So good to be with you. God's blessings to you and to all our listeners. Peter preached the gospel to the circumcised. Paul preached the gospel to the uncircumcised. The church today still proclaims the gospel to the whole world. And this is our fellowship, that gospel of Jesus Christ, not in circumcision, not in influence, not in anything other than what Jesus Christ has done to save you and me by his grace. I am your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Abel of Faith Lutheran Church in Godfrey, Illinois. If you have any questions about Galatians chapter 2, send an email to kfuo at kfuo.org. It is always a joy to hear from you. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.